Yo, before we get into this podcast, I want to ask for a huge favor from you. And that is if you have or you are getting value from this podcast, if you were to leave us a review or subscribe, it would mean the world. And quite frankly, selfishly, it's because I want to, we want to continue sharing these conversations, this medicine with the world. And when you leave a review, when you subscribe, it's a vote. And we would love to have your vote. Nonetheless, thank you so much and enjoy. My truth is that integrity is everything. Mm. That you have to be able to sleep at night. And the decisions you make in the day will determine, uh, outside of having a three-year-old son who doesn't let me sleep at night, the decisions I make every day determine how well I can sleep at night. my friend how's it going i am doing fantastic sweet i I can i can piggyback that ride with you as we're jumping on this journey i'd like to start with asking you what is your intention for this conversation wow um i think my intention is to give you know just to be as giving as possible within the conversation for listeners so giving i guess my intention is to give awesome Giving is great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to further that with you by just being a space for whatever needs to be given and asking that whatever questions need to be asked, they'll be asked through me and just having a space that we can have fun in. So fun and creating space. Cool. So little back story. You and I met at an event called New Media Summit. Uh, it's been a little over a year now. I think that was back in February 2019, I think. Yeah, I believe we met at the first one were you at were you at the uh the next one in san diego Mm-mm. or no okay so yeah so we met in tampa then right yes okay yes so 100 percent. yeah it was a february cool so we met there and i actually distinctly remember you had gone up you had spoken on stage and then after the fact i came to you and just specifically acknowledged you for what i believe to be was just like this profound level of, of speaking capacity which i know you've been in that field of speaking and podcasting for a little while now but what would you say began your journey into the, the sphere of speaking, which ultimately I would imagine is pointing at some level of wanting to impact people's lives, hence your intention of giving, but where did that journey start for you? So I'll tell you where I, I feel like if I went and I, I've shared this story in the past, as kind of the starting point, more defining moment in terms of at least me as a speaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it probably started slightly before this, but where it started was I was tricked into performing stand-up comedy at a comedy mm-hmm. club one night. And I was that guy, the, the, you know, the, I'm going to say the poster child for being scared of public speaking, like the sweat coming down, changing different colors, fainting. Mm-hmm. Like I had spoken three times and I went through all those motions, not fully fainting, but almost, you know, catching yourself from fainting. Yeah. And so the three talks or three times I spoke before that were miserable, a miserable mess is the only way I can describe it. And then I get tricked to be on a stand-up comedy stage one night. And that wasn't my intention, but I went with it because, and I just started sharing this recently. Somebody said, you need to start sharing that more, but I went with it that night because I was planning to try to find a way out of doing mm-hmm. it. And we only found out with like five minutes notice, we were going to be performing standup. You know, toughest, uh, they say the number one fear in the world above death is public speaking. And standup is even more of a fear. It's just so few people try it, they just lump it in. And so uh, what happened was before I decided whether I was going to go out the door or on the stage, I had a little tiny vision. And I'm not a vision guy, like I don't have many visions, but I had this vision of me sitting at the bar as this old dude. I even pictured myself as the old dude. And by the way, I already looked different than what I thought I would look like as the old dude. I didn't, I didn't have my head shaped at the time. I never knew sure. I'd do that. I was an old dude with the same hair I had then sitting at the bar next to another old dude. And I pointed up the stage to the old dude and said, uh, I was going to do that one time, eh, but I didn't. And hmm. it was, it was like an overwhelming feeling of what regret would feel like if I didn't get on the stage. So it was almost like the fear of regret was deeper than that big massive fear I had of speaking on stages. Mm-hmm. And so that's what pushed me on the stage that night. And the fact that I didn't die on the stage, you know, with comics, we always say, Oh, he died up there. Well, I, I, I actually literally thought maybe you die when you're on stage. Maybe that's what happens. And because I didn't die, I went back the next week. 
And then I went back the next week. Hmm. And so what happened over a short amount of time is I, and I bombed every week. I ne- I didn't get any laughs at all. But I <laughs> you got one right there <laughs> as, a, as a response to the last one. Yeah. That's my callback laugh from years ago that I needed back then, but I was going every week and not getting laughs. But I, for whatever reason, I, cause I didn't die. I just, I think it was then it was chasing the laugh. Like I needed to get that one laugh to have closure on it. And it took so long to get the closure on it. Then I became interested in it and obsessed with standup. And uh, what happened was within that first year, I was sitting with somebody in the event, I think it was Tony Robbins live. And somebody said to me, can you believe he's getting paid to do this? And then the light bulb went off and I said, whoa, wait, what? People get paid to do this? And I'm going to a comedy club every week and spending five bucks gas and getting $3 from the door? What? And so then I was like, I need to know more about this. And then very shortly after that, I uh, started teaching a business course at the community college. Mm -hmm. And then the rest, as I say, is history. I kept performing stand-up. I ended up performing nine years, 700 shows. So I didn't like just start and stop quickly. Uh, I kind of retired from stand-up six years ago. And that first year, though, while I was doing stand-up, I was also starting to teach and then eventually speak. And I will say probably the smartest thing I did was stick with comedy because it was such a great learning ground for communication and being a speaker. Mm-hmm. And so truthfully, Wolf, if I can say a starting point, that was where I would say the defined definition starting point is. But I feel like even just my love for comedy before that, my um, you know, I wasn't a reader, but I was big into communication. Um, all those things, I think, sort of, and even have me in my newspaper before that, I did interviews, so I was communicating with people. I feel like I was planting the seeds before that, but truthfully, the defining moment was that night in comedy. Hmm. What are some of like the major common threads you found between comedy and your speaking, which I can already see? Obviously, one is actual, you know, articulation of voice in front of a public audience, but what are some like ma- major threads you found? So there's the thing called the rule of three. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who came up with it, where it came up with it, but I know it's big in comedy and I carried it over to speaking. And I know a lot of speakers do it, but basically it just means you do things in threes. So if you go mm-hmm. and see a comic on stage, they might say, ah, here's jokes about pets. And then they might say uh, a joke about a goldfish, a joke about a cat and a goldfish, a joke, a joke about a dog. So they work in threes and they've learned that psychologically three is the most we can really intake and properly consume. So as a speaker, what that means is that I should not have more than three major points in a talk that's under 45 minutes. That's how I carried it over. That's one thing. Second thing is always start with your second strongest thing, but finish with your strongest because you need to pull them in. So second strongest is important to pull the person's attention, but finish with your strongest. So they remember you the minute they walk, you walk off a stage. And, and they think about you and refer and say, you need to check at the speaker because it was the last thing you said to them was the most powerful. Hmm. Uh, and then if I look at one more, I would say how to engage an audience is to ask a question. I mean, it's one of the easiest ways, but most powerful ways. So when I'm speaking, if I tell that stand-up story, I'll say at the first, how many people here would perform stand-up if I get them on a stage tonight? I so totally I do. Ask that, yeah, well, there you go. And so I ask that question, audience of 5,000 people, I've seen two hands go up, an audience of 50 people, I've seen five hands go up. And so I work with that even. So I'll ask the question. And then if you're on your phone, you go, crap, he asked a question, I got to answer it. And so I've now pulled you in and engaged you. But I also go deeper that if five people put their hand up at a 50, I know those numbers are really unique. 10% is very rare that will get up on stage. So then I even go further. I'll say, okay, now I forgot to say you can't have any alcohol. Now how many? And so I'll even work with those five that are left because I don't, I don't believe for a minute it'll be all five of those. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be two out of five that'll actually get up on the stage. Hmm. But that gives me more to work with as a speaker. But it all started from the question. The same with as a comic, you'll see comics say, hey, you guys here on the first date? You know, it's engagement is, is questioning. So hmm. top of mind, just like immediate thoughts, those are three things I think that carry over perfectly from stand-up to speaking. Hmm. Would you say that speaking is one of your, I mean, this is almost like just really low hanging fruit, but uh, like speaking as like your tool or like this like gift that you're wanting to use, whether it was in comedy, whether it was in your own podcast that you have or live speaking, you've done that. That's like the main tool that you use to drive your mission to the world. If you include podcasting and and if you, maybe if you centered around the word communication, so, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking is communication, uh, the podcast is communication, even a book, putting a book, it's still communication. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you, if you go that wide a net, then I would say absolutely a, a thousand percent. If you just focus it around speaking, I would say that I would say it's like 75% of hmm. it. Meaning, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't include podcasting as speaking or book writing, then I'm missing two key elements of what I've tried to do to share a message. 
you know, I'm, I'm a really passionate writer. I'm not just a person that wants somebody to write the article for me. I want to write it. And then at the same time, podcasting, I'm very passionate about it. And it's opened so many doors, allowed me to interview people that I could then leverage to get on stages because I was the guy who interviewed 6,000 people. So those things are definitely major platforms. So if you call it communication, then yes, all of those things. Communication has been kind of the underlying uh, platform overall, like the thing I've used to share my message. And then if you just call it, if you say just speaking, has that been the thing that I would say, if that leads out uh, podcasting and books, I would say it's like 75% is still mm-hmm. speaking is what my core uh, vehicle has been. Hmm. So the main thread in all that is communication, whether it's book, podcast, or speaking in general, what is the finger pointing at? What is, what is this all about? So in other words, what's the deeper reason I'm doing this? yeah what is what is in essence your i I could have just gone with straight with your why but i was just kind of imagining it metaphorically like what is is it a couple words is this mission statement what is what is the thing that's driving all of this so there's there's two words uh my girlfriend and i did this trip across the country Mm -hmm. and um it was about the trip was about how do you create little ripple impacts like ripple impacts that you might never see the result of so things like we carried around cards that said smiles are free, pass them on. And then we left a whole bunch in like um, a rest stop area in the bathroom. You know, so the people would hopefully see them and get a smile on their face and maybe pass it to somebody else. And so why I bring that up is because if you ask me to, if I had to say it within two words, then what I would say is what we called that tour, which was the invisible impact tour. So invisible impact is, is in, a, in a you know perfect world, what I'm trying to create, because you won't always know the impact you make. You won't always hit that, you know, if it's six degrees of separation, you might create the impact on one degree, but you don't see the other five. So that's, if I had to sum it up in two words, but if I had to go bigger, I would say I'm trying to create a ripple in other people's lives that leaves them better off than I found them so that I can live longer than my body. And, mm-hmm. and when I say that, I don't need to know that I live longer than my body. It's just the, the legacy is that um, I've impacted somebody's life that may be two generations removed from me that I'll never know. And I'm okay with that. But that's, at the end of the day, I think that's what drives me, is Mm -hmm. knowing that what I do has the ability to impact somebody's life. And so as a speaker, you might get immediate response from that. Somebody might send you a message right after your talk and say, hey, you said this and this is what it did for me. We just ran two really big virtual events through our Blue Talks brand. And we get to see the people commenting below saying, I wish I would have heard this two years ago. Uh, What I just heard this week will change my life forever. I'm crying as I listen to this because it resonates with me. That to me, you know, you're seeing the impact immediately. And so now that I know that, there's no way I can go behind the curtain again. I can't go back to not knowing that we have the ability as people to make that kind of impact with small and big actions. And so what the finger's pointing at for me is how do I create more of that invisible impact so that I make the world a better place overall? Hmm. And this is it's almost like a silly question to ask, but I, I can help it do it. Why do you think it's important to do that, at least for yourself, to leave to, to have that invisible impact? I, I, I feel like this is, this is, I mean, this is what comes to me when you ask that question, meaning I'm not sure if it's the sexiest or the actual answer, but I can tell you what popped into my head mm-hmm. is by following the philosophers that I have. So I didn't read my first book until I was 27. Mm-hmm. And once I read the first book, it changed everything. Like it was like night to day. Again, the door, the, the curtain was opened up and I could not see it anymore. And so that book was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Classic. Now, I tried three books in high school, tapped out, didn't finish them. I tried Cujo after high school. It, it honestly didn't scare me or, or it bored me. The movie scared the heck out of me, but the book didn't. <laughs> yeah. And so I had four books that I tapped out on. They didn't pull me in at all. Dale Carnegie's book, the first page pulled me in and I couldn't stop reading. And I actually read the book twice the same weekend. First book I ever read and second book I ever read. Um, but from that point forward, I started reading. And I was never a reader and never thought I could be a reader. And, you know, right now I'm reading, and I'm always reading a new book. Right now I'm reading How to Be Rich, which is a Napoleon Hill, a bridge type book with a whole bunch of the thought leaders of the 1800s. Right below it's uh, The E-Myth. Heard you know, that and so, and then just since I'm doing that, the uh, Brenda Burchard's book. One got, of, one of the, I got, oh, I think and I got then, all three of those on my shelf, actually. You have Ogmandino? I haven't heard of Ogmandino. Well, you need to check Ogmandino. So, so anyway, you get my point though. Oh, and then one last one to so make it five. I'm currently reading that one right now because I'm in my yoga teacher certification. Awesome stuff. So you got four out of the five. So, but my, my point is, is that I have books around me all the time. I'm in love with books and I wasn't before I read that book. So for me, it goes back to your question. 
what I think happened is I saw the impact Dale Carnegie had in my life. Hmm. And he had that impact in my life by simple a message. And then I read at the top of the book, I forget the number sold now, but it was like, say, 20 million, 25 million on the version I had. I mean, I don't know what it is now. It's probably 80 million. But at the time, one of the books said 25 million. And I'm like, wow, the dude wrote a book in 1937 that... I don't know if he grasped how brilliant of a book it was. And I don't even know if the world knew yet, but it did start selling fairly quickly. But my point is when he put pen to paper, there, he had no way of knowing the book would be that successful and impact that many lives. And I think seeing that number and going, wow, look at the lives he's impacted and he's been dead since the 50s. Hmm. You know, and that, I think there's something that triggered there that was like, wow, that's amazing. The fact that this guy impacted me 40 some years, 50 years after his death. And I think that just gave me a taste of, I don't necessarily need to be known for doing it, but I want to have some form of that, whatever mm -hmm. that is. Yeah, it sounds like in a, my life was changed from it, from somebody. Yeah. It sounds like in a way, not that it's the same, but it, it's like a modeling, you're, you're modeling in a way, like what you notice, like, wait, this person had this impact on me and, you know, he's long since gone. This book is still hanging out. It's got, you know, however many millions of copies that it sold. And, you know, just the first page alone captivated me. I want to be able to have that type of impact on somebody else's life via, via speaking, via podcasting, via book, but being able to have said or expressed something that long after you're gone still is having that that drip effect, if you will, like the drip, 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 generations past. Yeah, I'll tell you, I said this, um, and I'll tell you where I got it. I, I'm all about credit. That's been my whole, you know, interviewing 6,000 people you have. I mean, I drop all the time. So-and-so said to me when, like, I'm all about credit. I don't go, I made this up or whatever. Um, Grant Cardone, I heard an interview one time. He said, uh, Brett, uh, Darren Hardy was interviewing him in Success Magazine. And mm -hmm. he said, what, you know, what do you think legacy is? And what do you want yours to be? And he said, I think it's when you can live longer than your body. Your work can live longer than in your body. So in other words, when your body's gone, you still live on. And to me, I don't, I don't need that. Like I said, I don't need that for a personal validation point of view, but I think that's, that to me is a noble gesture to try to create stuff in such a way that you're impacting people even when you're no longer here. And, you know, I don't pretend to think that I'm going to be a person like, and I don't know, I, there's no way I know, but I'm not trying to aim to be like Dale Carnegie where somebody's reading my book 50 years from now and having the same kind of impact. Because I also think we're in a different world. You know, Dale Carnegie wrote that book, how many books were in the market versus how many books get released now? And there's no comparison. So I'm not trying to, to, to be him, but I can totally strive for what he did, which is again, impacting lives beyond his body. And, you know, I, I don't know why this came to my mind, but it also makes me think back to our invisible impact tour. One of the big moments that stood out to us that I shared for a while during my talks that impacted others was going to Jimi Hendrix's gravesite mm -hmm. in Seattle. And Jimi Hendrix, at that time, I think he was gone 43 years. And we went to his gravesite and we, we spent like an hour and a bit there. We had our dog with us as well. And we were sort of just hanging around and I'm glad we did hang around that long because a guy pulled up in a little red car at some point while we were there, jumped out of the car, cleaned all the litter around Hendrix's gravesite, jumped back in his little red car and drove away. And it occurred to me two things at that point. First of all, he obviously doesn't work for the grave site place because he only cleaned one graveyard, graveyard. So he's obviously a terrible worker if he only if he worked for them. Secondly, <laughs> he probably lives nearby. I mean, that, that's just a, that's just my conclusion. But secondly, if he lives nearby, he probably goes there every second day and cleans Hendrix's gravesite. And yet Hendrix has been dead 43 years. So the question is, what kind of impact did Hendrix had on a guy, having a guy for him to do that? So, you know, I don't know why, but I always thought about that. No matter what, if Hendrix never impacted one more person in the world ever to impact somebody to a level where he said, I need to clean, keep his graveyard, gravesite clean, there, there's something to me, I don't know, I don't, there's something beautiful about that. So, you know, it's not like I say, I'm trying to strive to be Hendrix or Carnegie. It's just that I can do my little part to make the world a little bit better like they did in their own way. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that's even debatable, right? Like with Hendrix, you could debate whether or not, you know, other things he did made the world better or not. But the point is still for that one person, it made, he made a difference for him. Hmm. So when you're gone, if there was something written on your tombstone, not for you, not from you, what would you want? What would you imagine? What would you want that thing to have been said about the work that you've done? Those, those ripples in a way. He essentially, he aimed to help people live mm -hmm. better lives. I mean that, you know, I, I could pretty up more than that, but that, you know, that's the essence of it is that he aimed to help people live a better life. Hmm. Awesome. Now, 
as an expression of the speaking you're doing, the writing that you're doing, the podcasting that you're doing, uh, I'd imagine in, in some way it's all, like I said, point, that finger pointing is that, you know, being able to have this invisible, uh, intangible legacy, maybe now, but maybe it has this like Hendrix effect, as you pointed out. What is, what would you say are like your, your top three things, maybe even outside of business? Cause I know that you have a heavy hand in business, but what are like the top three things that if you were to talk about them, you could just in, with an insatiable appetite, just go to town on, you know, talking about these three things. It can be business related, it can be non-business related, but what's like your top three. If I sit down with you in a bar and I'm like, what's your three favorite things? Let's talk. Uh, so, I mean, there, it goes from both. I think all, I don't want to say all three of them are, they're not all three personal. So mm-hmm. there's one I can think of that's professional. Uh, I think I, I'm a father now and I have a three-year-old mm-hmm. and I think the stuff that he does, like the funny stuff that he does, I could probably talk about that forever. Just like the little <laughs> things he does. And I'm like, that's hilarious. Like, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's just funny how like that, what was the show used to be called? The, the darndest kids say the darndest things. Yeah. <laughs> I could experience that. So I think talking about that is one. The second thing I would say, I, I want to say it's a tie. I know that'll give me four. So you can take one of them away, but <laughs> either music or it sounds strange. I could talk about, I feel like I could talk about yoga for a long time. Okay, cool. But, but let's say music. Let's go with that one. Cause that's, that was my passion since I was really young. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is speaking. Like I can talk, I can geek out on speakers. Like I can talk about uh, Les Brown when he said this at a certain time, Steve Jobs when he did the launch for the iPod. Like I kind of geek out on that stuff. So I guess if I were to just say it quickly, I would say, you know, funny things my son says, and this is just starting now. Like, I mean, this is, he's starting to really hit the high notes of funny now. A plentiful so, amount of comedy would come right from that alone, I'm sure. 100%. And then music, because I've just been obsessed with music since I was a kid, to the point when we were growing up, my friends and I knew the birth dates of our favorite rock stars. We knew their height, like obsessive, like crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, it was pretty common in the 80s, but it was still like crazy to think now. And then the third one, like I said, speaking, I, I have to throw that in there because, I mean, I have books uh, and speaking that, I mean, I've reread and, and I've just, and I mean, I've helped how many speakers speak on stages. So it's, it is something, obviously, I geek out on. So those would be the three. Okay. So you seem to have this really good memory for names, dates, figures, quotes, things like that. Is that something that you trained or something you just naturally had? Is it's like striking my brain lately. I've been really on this binge about, uh, how to optimize the brain and remembering and being able to recall and things like that. But I'm curious, it seems like you have this, maybe you've made it a practice and a discipline, but what has it be so sticky for you? So this is an interesting question because I don't know if I was born with it or if I worked the muscle. Sure. And so, and, and so I'm going to say it on both ends. On one hand, I think I was given a little bit more than most because I think of my father who's not really in my life and I'm not really that close with, but he can remember phone numbers from that he was given like 20 years ago. And strangely enough, I didn't have his number for a bunch of years. He gave me his number like a year ago now, and I can still tell you his number. He gave me it one day, once. I've never repeated it again. But I've been able to like say, this is his number, right? My mom has his number and I was able to say it. Like I wait six months later, I asked my mom, she was, yeah, that's it. And so, so I have to say, I must have had something that was kind of a gift for memory because that I didn't work that muscle. This goes right back to when I was like 10 years old. I would be given a number from Ontario and I remember the number months later. And I didn't, and I didn't even say, remember this number or talk it through. And now I, I can't, I mean, I did it with my father's number. I don't think I can do it with any number because we have so much more to remember now. Even going back, I'm 45 and going back to that timeline, even that many years ago, 30 years ago, there was way less. I mean, we, we only had like, I don't know, 20 channels on the TV or 30 or 40, <laughs> but not like 5,000. So there's so much more to remember now. Obviously, my, my, as you get older, your memory struggles a bit. But to answer that, I think I started it with a strong memory, like a really good memory, but I think I worked the muscle. Meaning when you think back to me memorizing all my musicians, uh, favorite foods and you know their birthdays or whatever we knew. Favorite foods too, wow. Yeah, we read Metal Edge magazine and whatever they said about them, we knew that. And but they had in Metal Edge, they had their birthdays, they had their heights, everything. And so we knew all that stuff. About we didn't know it about like every band we listened to, but we knew it about like our three favorite bands. Mm-hmm. And so we could tell people like, oh, he's five eight, unless he's wearing heels, because in the eighties they wore heels, so it'd be like five eight or he's six two. But anyway, we knew that stuff, and 
And I, I remember that. So maybe I always have been working that muscle, like even from then, like that was 16, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, uh, then when I started interviewing people, it's been such a tool. Like I, pe- I talk to people that run podcasts and I'm like, dude, I can't remember like an interview I did a week ago. And I'm ciphering off stuff I did in an interview from 2012, just like it was just now. And I, not only can I remember one thing they said, in a lot of cases, I can remember the whole interview. Like you, you, you don't even like rehearsing it, but you're just like, okay, I, it's like you stored it in your own internal cloud drive in your, in your own brain. You're just like, oh yeah, that one time five years ago. I guess so. I, like, I remember names, things they said, what the message was like almost any interview I've done. If somebody says, what was the key takeaway? I can usually like immediately go, this was the big takeaway for me. Hmm. And, and like I said, I don't know fully where it comes from because I think it was a mixture between gift and then I worked the muscle. Sure. I had a gift and I worked the gift, I guess. Uh, but it, it served me so well as an interviewer because I can go into an interview with somebody like you're doing without notes, without questions. And I, and I usually know the person to some degree when before the interview. So I can go like, for example, Mark Victor Hansen, I interviewed him like a week ago and he's the chicken soup for the soul co-creator. And I've interviewed Mark say four times and I can say, Mark, you know, remember when I interviewed you the second interview, you said this, do I have this correct? And 99% of the time, oh yeah, it's exactly, exactly the story. Mm. And like, so but I can go back to him and say, you remember this story? You know, I think the audience would love to hear this because I heard this story four years ago and it made such an impact. So I'd love to be free to reveal it. And sometimes I'm actually reminding them and they're going, a story? And then I have to give them more triggers to remember their own story. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, so there's something there. And, and I say that usually it's the people I interview that are like 75 when I'll say, you know, remember this thing? And they're like, and then they just start going into another story and then I'll wait for the gun. Then I'll say, yeah, no, that was awesome. Remember the other story. And like, I was still searching for a different one. So I didn't go back in to get the other story, but I realized, okay, I didn't give them enough of a trigger. So I remember their story from five years ago, better than they do. And they probably shared it on stage 50 times or a thousand times. So there's something there. Yeah. You definitely got some, some superhero X-Men stuff going on with there. That's pretty cool. Well, like I said, it serves you well if you're a writer. So if I'm like, I'm working on my next book slowly and I stopped, I don't know how long ago now. I, I went really quick, got four chapters done and I was doing it in the airport while I was traveling and then now it's just been stalled again. But it's going to be my kind of answer to Think and Grow Rich. And that book requires, the way I'm writing it, requires a lot of memory of interviews. I can't always go back to the interview and go listen to an hour and a half just to get the one quote I want to share. So the great part about having a good memory is I literally know the quote. And then if I had to verify I have it right, if there's ever a time I'm like, do I have that correct? Then I'll go back. But I don't have to go through every interview to know. I mean, I know what, you know, I know I got a good enough memory. I can remember what was said. Hmm. You've got hmm. me to dissect it more than I've ever had before, by the way. So got I'm actually, I, I, you got me to dissect it more than I ever had before. So I'm actually going through it in real time, trying to answer your question while also telling myself. Isn't that how it normally goes? You hold up a mirror and then someone figures out in themselves. I've had that happen plenty of times. Hmm. That's really cool pretty cool yeah yeah my dad has that same kind of weird memory I, uh, he'll be telling stories like yeah you know my kindergarten mrs Co- like first name last name kindergarten i'm like how i don't that doesn't huh like my brain doesn't compute how he just pulls out names and dates and facts and full detailed stories and the odd thing is he has the same thing going on with his dreams he has like james cameron avatar level detailed dreams and then he'll come out and tell you detailed stories as if he had like lived his whole life inside of his dreams i'm like i think i slightly remember in my dream there was maybe a bathroom maybe there wasn't for some reason the door might have not been on the hinges but he just like lays it all out detail for detail verbatim and like he'll quote exact things that people said so i I see the similarity i just couldn't help but go down that rabbit hole well, and I'll add in, it's interesting when you say that, because what I don't have is the ability to remember my dreams that well, first of all. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember like in detail. I just, every now and then I'll wake up and I'll remember a dream fully. Mm-hmm. For the most part, I don't remember. And then secondly, you made me think of another thing is I don't remember a lot of those teachers' names. And I, here's what I figured out for me. The thing I remember has to have made an impact on me. Mm. So in other words, I don't remember the, the details that don't matter. That's the way my, now I'm just talking out loud for me, the details that don't matter. I remember Einstein said, he didn't uh, need to know his home address because he could always look it up in a, in a minute and he lived there. And he said, why would I store that in my mind? It's almost like if you had back then, if, if you had a phone or actually, yeah, it was on time. But if you had a phone, it'd be like saying, I didn't, don't need to remember my number. I'm not calling myself. So why would I waste my brain to remember that? Whereas 99% of the people knew their phone number before we had all the touch buttons. And so for me, I, just as you said that, like, I think the teachers that I can tell you their first and last name and what they taught me, the impact they had, they were the teachers that had an impact on me. All the rest, I can't remember a thing about them. 
So mm. I think it's not for me. I don't remember it unless it's significant to me. Well, it's interesting though, because it seems like you make your podcast very significant for you. Because if you do have the capacity to remember all of that information, then you, in some way in your brain, you've you've made this like important emotional connection attachment to it in such a way that it actually is rehearsable and rememberable. Cause like for me, I'm training my brain to do this because I had this, this goes into some weird stuff. I kind of like picking apart, uh, kind of like dissecting it, but I have this like forgetful memory where it's like, it just forgets things all the time. So now I'm having to train my brain to actually remember. And it points at a quote, which I'm sure you've heard. And I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but from Maya Angelou, it was like, they won't remember what you said or what you did, but they remember how you made them feel. And it seems like they impacted you in a way. It had you feel something where you're like, yeah, I remember. But then you were also able to remember what they said as a byproduct of that experience, it seems. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's, that's, it seems like that is the trigger for why I remember what I do. Because, again, I can tell you I don't remember everything. But what I do remember, I never forget. And, and, and yeah, to, to your point, you maybe think of it too. With the show, for the most part, in a lot of cases, I'm interviewing my dream list. Hmm. You know, so there's obviously we bring on people on the show that I met through different means or that reached out and they made a good pitch or whatever. But 80%, I would say in, in eight years, 80% of the interviews on the show have been my wish list. So the other side is I've learned about them. I knew about them before the interview and I've researched them before the interview. So by the time I'm interviewing them, I feel like I know them well enough that I can jump into different parts of their backstory. Like as if I already know, which... I think makes them comfortable because I'm bringing stuff out of them. They don't usually share hmm. because most people go into it. Even if they know of them, they don't know all their stories. You know what hmm. I mean? Like Jack Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen were turned down 142 times. They were rejected with chicken soup for the soul. Well, a lot of people might may or may not know that part, but if they don't know that part, then how can they dive deeper? Their, their interview by the finish of the interview, they might find out that. Whereas I'm already starting there because I've known that about them for, since like 1993. So hmm. I'm already starting deeper, but I can, I can start the interview saying, you know, the, the book was rejected 142 times, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm, I want to find out about that publisher that actually took them. Most people just want to know about the rejections. They're blown away. They were rejected. I want to know more about that publisher, why he chose them, what life looks like now for that publisher. Yeah. And we had a conversation and that publisher has done quite well financially because of the fact that he took a chance on them. And I, what I didn't know early on, and I found this out through interviews, is that they sort of hybrid published it. They had to buy some of their own copies and that. Like it, it wasn't really like a traditional publisher, but they didn't have hybrids back then. So it was close to a traditional publisher. Hmm. And it was basically like they had to do more work than him. He basically was the only publisher out of 143 that signed them. And he still made them jump through all the hoops because he didn't believe their book would sell like it did. And he said, what's your goal? And they said, their book will sell 100,000 copies this year. And he said, never happened. Ooh. And he was the one that signed them. And he didn't think they could do it. And so, but you get my point, right? I don't mean to dive into their story, yeah. but, but I'm starting already uh, knowing the part about the rejection. So I'm already starting deeper maybe than somebody else. And the memory serves me in doing that. But the reason I'm able to do that is because I've, I've been a fan of their work and read their work and watched their interviews and all that stuff. So to your point, I think it's because it's something that's already of, interest to me. And the thing I can do with somebody I'm just meeting, and it's the first interview ever, I always want to learn about everybody. So I can actually get interested about where they're at right now in their mm -hmm. time. Like struggling, I can get interested in that. If they're, if they just made that jump to the next stage for them, which could be just stage two, I can jump in there. And so, yeah, I think it's, it all comes back to, I have to be interested in it to remember. Hmm. That's a really great point. So <laughs> no one likes picking favorites, but I got to go there. I got to ask you out of all of your podcasts you've ever done. What was your favorite podcast you've ever had? Who was it with? Wow. This is, I mean, so if you ask me it in different ways, because if you ask me, I'll give you a, a double answer. If you ask me yeah. with interviews, it's a different answer probably than the podcast. And the reason I say that okay. is I used to have a newspaper before the podcast. So I had print interviews where I still was interviewing them. It's just that we didn't capture the, and share the audio. Mm -hmm. If I go back to that, I would probably say Robin Sharma, who is the guy who wrote the book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Okay. And uh, I think 10, 10 other international bestsellers. Robin, why, why the interview was, there was two reasons. One, the insight he delivered, and he's like a guy that's like bang, bang, bang. Every insight's like one liner that just changes your life type thing. Mm. And so that's goals. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Like this guy, for example, I remember him talking about how Warren Buffett lived his life 
uh, in such a way that he reverse engineered it. And mm-hmm. he basically wrote down, well, who, are, who what do I want to look like and my life look like when I'm 80 on the rocking chair? And now what are the five things I have to do every month to get there? You know, and so I remember those kind of things. And him telling me about his book, uh, his first book, The Monk Who Sold Ferrari, he published it with a Kinko's. He quit his $250,000 a year law job, went and printed this book at Kinko's and sold him at the back of his car with his father. And then he ended up doing a book signing. Only three people showed up, but one of the three people ended up being the publisher of HarperCollins. Wow. He didn't know that at the time. He got a call the next week and the lady said he wants to schedule an appointment. He said, oh, he didn't tell me who he was. She goes, oh, he didn't? Oh, he's the, par- he's the publisher of HarperCollins. And that's who bought the book. And then the book sold 5 million copies. So, but here's why. So there was two things. One is the interview is so significant in ta- terms of all the knowledge he dropped. But the other side, which is what makes it unique on the other side, is I had a massive toothache. And the only way I could keep it at bay was to drink cold water. So I had to drink like three of these in a 45 minute interview. And all I could think of in the last 50 minutes, is I need to go to the bathroom. I need to go to the bathroom. The whole interview was just like memorable for various reasons. And, and the knowledge was insane. And thankfully I was recording because after I went to the bathroom, then I listened to his whole interview again. But, um, but yeah, so that, I mean, so that's one that stands out if I talk pre podcast, mm-hmm. if I go with the podcast, I would say, I hate to, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to say it's between Jack Canfield and Lisa Nichols. Okay. And Lisa Nichols again, same thing as the Robin Sharma thing, just the insight so profound and she goes so deep and she shares bears so much of her soul that it's just absolutely insane how much she delivers in a podcast interview. Second, why I would say Jack is a specific question I asked Jack question i don't know if he's ever been asked and i end up asking i get to ask mark this question a few weeks ago mark victor hansen jack's writing partner with chicken soup and basically i said if you were launching chicken soup today given the world we live in today versus the world where you because what they did in the past mark shared the name i never heard it before on the show uh two weeks ago in our virtual event bypass marketing so what they did was they bypassed the bookstores and found ways to market directly to the consumer and so that's harder to do now with the digital world i mean you can still obviously do it but what I wanted to know is how would you release a digital book today? How would you release chicken soup if you were in the world we're in today? If you had to also include Kindle and all the other stuff, because they released it in 93 when none of this existed. Mm-hmm. And they did all these creative things that nobody had ever thought of. But my question is, what would you do today now? Given that the world's different, given whatever. And he came up with like a 10 minute business plan that I'm like, this needs to be taught in like writing universities, like in, in, on the spot without any, and, and I'm like, this guy doesn't even have to know this because he already has the books. I mean, they, they sold 600 million copies. He doesn't need to know how he would do it now, but yet he's still somewhere. Either he came up with it on the fly or he's already thought about what would I do differently? Either way, I was just like, I almost fell over. Like he didn't even pause to think about it. It was just boom. He jumped right into a marketing plan. And like it was stuff, I'm going by memory now. This is five, six years ago, but things like he said, and this is stuff people do now, but in the bottom, he said he'd have it like CNN where it'd be a rolling credits and it'd be quotes from the book and then buy the book here and click on the quote. And then he'd invite all his influencer friends and sit in the studio and be interviewed just like, and so he's going through all this stuff. I'm like, and he hasn't done that yet. So I'm like, you thought of all this stuff you don't even have to do. (laughs) That excites me. Just the idea that, that a guy could deliver that much in 10 minutes from a question he maybe has never been asked before. So those, I, I know you asked for one, I gave you three. No, those are all really great. Those are all great stories, which I know I've only got to hear like the surface level of, but that's actually really cool. Yeah, it was, yeah, they were experiences, that's for sure. Okay, cool. So, and I'm gonna let you take this wherever you want. I'm not actually, uh, there's not a, a right or wrong answer, but just answer this how it comes to you. What is your truth? Hmm. That's a tough one. My truth, and again, I'll say what comes to me right now. Yeah. Um, my truth is that integrity is everything. Mm. That you have to be able to sleep at night. And the decisions you make in the day will determine, uh, outside of having a three-year-old son who doesn't let me sleep at night, <laughs> if that an equation, um, the decisions I make every day determine how well I can sleep at night. Mm. And so I circle back and say, my truth is that integrity is everything. Mm. And how do you define integrity? I, I circle back and say, if you can sleep at night, then you know you okay. can. So, so to me, it means um, how you deal with people, work with people. There's no hidden truths behind that. There's no agendas. There's no, it's like, hmm. if I tell you that 
I'm going to do this, then it's true. If I tell you that, um, you know, this is the price, like when I, when I say, to, and this goes, I mean, this, and this factors in the sales, but if we're, we have our program and we're launching it and it's 50% lower than it was before, then I'll say that. If it's not 50% lower right now, I wouldn't say it was. So if you hear me say like, oh, okay. before, then it's true. I've never done the pricing before. And I think back to a guy named, well, you probably know John Lee Dumas, Entrepreneurs on Fire. Mm-hmm. And he launched this thing called Podcasters Paradise, which is a community for podcasters. And when he launched it, he said, it'll never be this price again, ever. And people, I remember at the time, were like, yeah, right, John, sure, whatever. Everybody says that. And that price was never the same again. And in fact, I might have this wrong, but I think whenever I signed up, it was like 300 and some dollars. And I'm grandfather for life. And the last number somebody told me, whether it's true or not, I don't know if it's this high. Somebody told me it's like over 2,000 a year now. And I paid 300 and some. And it went like this. Every time he said, this was the last lowest it'll ever be again. And what, to me, that's integrity. Hmm. When he says you close the doors for the program, he doesn't then open it up again a day later and say, oh, we decided to reopen it for three more days because the internet went down all over the world. You know, to me, integrity is being able to sleep knowing when nobody else can see what you said and nobody else knows if it's true, you still do. Hmm. I love that. Now, how... Do you take that? Because I can see pretty much being able to sleep well at night is directly correlated with your ability to say, did I do the things that I committed to doing? And was I integrous with my word as well with what I said I was going to do? Did I do those things? How do you bring that in to the work that you're doing? Or actually, maybe start with this. What is the main work, the main medicine that you are serving the world? And how do you implement that into the main work you're doing right now? So it's a little different now than it has been with the same underlying purpose. But now, in a lot of ways, I'm serving other influencers, speakers, authors, helping them get their message out. Yep. And what I see with that is then it becomes a one-to-many. So if I have 350 people in my program and 50 of those people are go-getters and going to make a magic happen, then I can reach indirectly, very indirectly, the people those 50 people can reach rather than just me. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm doing now is helping more of those people get their message to the world. And so to me, that's, that's what I'm doing now. And again, it's still, I mean, it all ties back into the invisible impact. It really still all ties back into it, but it takes, at some point you got to realize like Michael Gerber in the e-myth talks about how um, you should franchise your business, even if you never want to have a franchise, because then you can work on your business instead of in it. So you can actually serve more people. If you, if you're a stand-up comic, you can serve more people if you hire 10 other stand-up comics and have them all performing around town rather than just you. So I see it the same on the speaking side. And so that ties into me helping people get their message out. But the integrity piece is that if I have a new program I'm offering that I think they'd be a good fit for, again, I don't come in and say this is the, the low. I mean, if, if it's the first time we ever offered it, I say it's the lowest price we ever offered, then it's true, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be able to say to yourself, this is true. Yeah. And and I don't mean you manipulate it to be true, but there's ways you can say this is true, but but I don't think you should say it if it's not true. So I can give you an example: is we have um, we have a, a event we just did, the virtual event I mentioned, and so at that on that event we had Les Brown speaking, and so somebody that spoke at that event could say I shared the bill with Les Brown. That's 100% true, right? The bill is the, the poster promoted. Here's who's on the card or the lineup or what have you. So they technically shared the bill with Les Brown. But some people hearing that will think they meant they shared it at a live event. So to me, they're still living with integrity because they didn't tell you it was at a live event. They're just saying I was on the bill with Les Brown. That's true. But if they said uh, I shared the bill with Les Brown and Les Brown basically uh, somebody who's running the event shared the bill with them last week and then they shared the bill with you and you're somehow saying you shared the bill with less, even though you weren't on the card at all, hmm. that there's no integrity with. Hmm. Or a great example is if you say, um, I, uh, I help people create seven figures in their life mm-hmm. after I did it for myself, but you've never created seven figures. There's me, a lot of that. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of people saying, um, I just saw this today. I won't, I won't say any names. I won't do anything to identify the person, but I, I actually screenshot it to my girlfriend because sometimes I get like, I can't believe people do this. But the person said, I'm a next level success, whatever coach. But the, but the implication, the way, the way it's titled is I help you go to levels most people can't get to. But in the same thing, 
it was a it was a story like a story on their Facebook page. Yeah. He said, this is, uh, this is the first time this year I've reached five figures, thanks to so-and-so, second time in my business, my life of my business. Well, five figures is 10000 a month. So what that tells you is they're not making six figures a year. And if they only did it once this year and they've only done it twice ever, they're probably closer to, say, 4000 or 5000 a month. So I'm not, I don't have to be a mathematician to know that means they're maybe making 45000 a year. But yet they're calling themselves uh, next-level uh, success uh, what was the other word? The other word was the biggest word. I can't remember what it was. But success, um, oh, success influencer or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the implication again was that I'm helping people get the levels they never got to before. Oh, yeah. And, and, and by the way, financially, I'm helping people do that. But oh, yeah, I've never broken 50000 a year. Now, I'm making some assumptions in there. But the one thing I'm not assuming is they're not at six figures if they've only done 10000 once in a month, once in a year. So... Again, that's who, what's, whose definition of what's successful. It's not to say six figures is the only thing that's successful. But I think if you're telling me you can create, help me create success in my business, then you probably should have tasted it in a certain way yourself. So I, this is a long way to say that's kind of my rant, my soapbox rant. But the backstory to it is I believe in integrity. So I think, but at the same time, I think you can still position yourself and still have your integrity. So that person instead could say, I'm a business coach. They don't have to say next level, up level you, success oriented influencer that's created millions of million people, you know, people with millions of dollars. They could just say, I'm a business coach. And then there's, I'm not, I can't argue that. And at the same time, I don't need to know perhaps you're only making 50,000 a year. If you can somehow will me into making 300,000, but you've only made 50, then you're an amazing coach. Mm-hmm. But my point is, is that I don't think you should be pitching that I'm a next level coach if you're not at the next level. And so does that make sense? So in other words, I'm a big on integrity. Totally. But I also understand from a branding and positioning perspective, you can you can position yourself in a way that somebody might think, oh, look at that. That's amazing. But yet they don't know all the details of the amazing. So in other words, you could have been you could have been seen on CBS radio and you could say as seen on CBS. Well, in their head, they could think you're on CBS morning news television. But you didn't say that. You just Mm -hmm. said CBS. So to me, that's you still can keep your integrity. But if you say, again, I was on NBC and you weren't, there's no integrity in that. So that was a, you got me on a soapbox ramp, but does that, okay. does that make sense? <laughs> it totally makes sense. So what is your integrous way of wording the value that you're providing in two sentences? I'm really like, like, how do you articulate that value? Cause I know that you, you, you've probably been through this a couple of times. So it depends on, cause there's the other thing I'm juggling multiple things. They're all sure. filtered back into the same one. But if you ask me, for example, my branded talk program, so this is around helping you get a TEDx talk or a blue talk now or a goal cast or what have you. Um, that one, if I was, you know, if you said two sentences, I would basically say, I aim to help you secure your TEDx talk. So business comes to you easier than ever before. Hmm. And then if you ask me to go one step further, I would say that the fact of the, the, the brand that the TEDx, the prestige behind the brand allows, it, it opens doors for you that you couldn't get open without that key. So, you know, the further you go into it, the further I can share that. If you said in my speaking program, I would say what I help people do is figure out how to build a business that is speaking, not Mm -hmm. just do it for fun. If you said, um, when I'm speaking to an audience, what what do I deliver? Again, this goes back to the invisible impact, but I'm going to help the people in your room get get from A to Z quicker. And I'm going to create a wow so that everybody says, we got to attend your event again next year. Mm. So, and, and it, you know, we can go further and further into my book and everything else, but that hopefully that answered the question. But I mean, it's, it's, it's basically though, what you notice the key thing there. I didn't say with the speaking program, I'm going to help you make seven figure speaking. That's what I'm getting at. I didn't say that because that's going to depend a lot on you and the work you put in and all that other stuff. Totally. But I don't promise a number and same with the TEDx. I didn't say I'm going to land you a TEDx. My aim is to land you a TEDx. Now, what I can back that up with is uh, we have a student every three weeks landing their TEDx in 2019. So the results are there, but I'm not going to say I'm going to land you a TEDx and, and guarantee it, and then you don't land it. Yep. And then what we do? I see people that say, the gar- I guarantee you you'll make this much money a year, and if you don't, I'll keep helping you make it. Well, how's that a guarantee? If you don't help me make it, how, what's to say you can ever help me make it? So my point is, is that um, whenever I offer to you, I talk about realistic goals. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, with the TEDx thing, if you don't land the TEDx talk, I'm going to actually help you with your brand either way. You're going to get a whole bunch of uh, marketing and branding for you, even if you never land the TEDx talk. Those are all true deliverables, in my opinion. Got it. Perfect. And if somebody's wanting to get connected with you to capitalize on that, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Wow. Uh, best way. So I'm going to make it easy 
with one hub rather than, you know, in the past I've done like, here's the five websites and I've seen everything. (laughs) And and as we know, uh, if you do too much of everything, you're doing nothing of nothing. So it's like, if you give too many, people won't go to any. So I'm going to give an easy one. I'm going to say, because we talked a little bit about speaking and I'm going to go out there on a limb and say, um, even if you don't want to ever get speaking on a stage, if you're listening to this and you want to be on Facebook Lives or Zoom or anything like that, you'll get knowledge from this. Uh, Or even if you just want to become a better communicator, I have a book called The Book of Public Speaking. And basically, the first section is me teaching what I learned. Second section is seven interviews with some of the world's top speakers, learning from them. Third section is bonus quotes from other speakers about speaking. And so the book is called The Book of Public Speaking. And I'd like to give the digital version of the book to your audience. Well, so it's as easy as this. It's called The Book of Public Speaking. Mm -hmm. And the website is The Book of Public Speaking. Dot com. So Perfect. if you go there, grab your book, then you're in my, my community, my tribe, my network. And then from there, it's, it's easy because um, if you want to, basically you'll get an email as soon as you, you uh, grab the book yep. and then that'll tell you how to connect with me further and, and join me on social media and all that kind of stuff. Perfect. And then of course, that'll be in the show notes. I'll make sure that that's available. So there's no misconceptions. I really appreciate your time, man. It's been a long time coming and I appreciate you helping me jump through hoops, but thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I didn't even know when we first met it would ever happen. But then once I realized it was going to, I've been excited about this. And I have to say, your interview style is amazing. You brought stuff out of me that nobody ever has. So uh, use that if you want as a testimonial. But you, you brought stuff out of me that I haven't shared, I don't think, ever in an interview or went deeper on stuff that I've never went that deep on. So you're That's doing good thing. Very flattering. I really do appreciate that. And as always, uh, thank you. I'm sure we'll be visiting this again. Uh, for those of you listening, thank you so much for your time, your energy. Really appreciate it. As always, continue to find, follow, and live your truth and follow the wolf within you. How? Peace. Thank you so much for listening in. If you got value out of this message, We would love it if you subscribed and shared it with your tribe so we can continue to share this message and this medicine with people all over the world. Much love and peace be with you.